1: and the first day of Season 19 of Civil War Talk Radio, and the very middle of the Battle of Gettysburg, or at least that's where one appears to be when you're standing in the center of the famous cyclorama painting of the battle, now visible at the visitor center behind Cemetery Ridge. The painting is a work of art, the centerpiece of a 3D sound and light show, a reference source, and a historical artifact in itself with a fascinating backstory. We'll learn more about this painting from Sue Boardman, Gettysburg Licensed Battlefield Guide and co-author of The Gettysburg Cyclorama, The Turning Point of the Civil War on Canvas, when she joins us tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live
3: Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast.
2: If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to Prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
2: And
1: welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you From the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. The first show of our 19th season of Civil War Talk Radio, the podcast that began before there were any podcasts. We thought it was internet radio in those days and somehow has endured through the last almost two decades. Delighted to be back for season 19. Uh, started out the new school year here at ECU by uh, getting uh, COVID in the first week of classes, uh, from, probably from one of my students, and then bringing that home, and my wife got it from me. And so we have been home isolating ourselves for the past week. I will try not to cough too much tonight. I'm just about over it. Uh, look forward to getting back in the classroom next week. Symptoms weren't too bad. Uh, I've had four shots uh, that helped I think reduce the severity of it but it's not something I'd recommend Uh, everyone do your best to stay safe and don't get this if you can help it other than that it is great to be back Uh, East Carolina is undefeated in the 2022 football season so far with our first game coming up this Saturday against a nationally ranked opponent so enjoy the unblemished record while we can uh ECU Soccer is off to a, a great start. They did lose the match one to nothing against Duke, but Duke is number two in the country at that time. And since then, ECU won the last two matches by shutouts. They're looking good. They've got a new coach. Last summer, last time we talked here on the show, BCU Baseball was... Uh, in the Super Regionals, fortunately, dropped the final game uh, to Texas and didn't get to go to the elusive College World Series. I'll try again next year, but had a great season. Uh, as I uh, put on the, the merchandise website, uh, you can go to impedimentsofwar.org and click on the link to the t-shirt site there at Public, and you can get your Civil War Talk Radio t-shirt or your Eastern Carolina University t-shirt, which is what espn people keep calling our school that's not the name it's east carolina uh but i finally gave in and made myself an eastern carolina shirt to wear and, uh, i may have the only copy so far but you can buy one in fact you'll want to rush out and buy several uh for watching ecu games in the season ahead that was last summer that we last talked about uh sports on campus and so on, and also Civil War Matters. Uh, the last show came from the Civil War Institute in June uh, in Gettysburg. The Civil War Institute is already gearing up for next year. They are offering listeners of Civil War Talk Radio a 15% discount. If you sign up for the Institute, it's June 9th through 14 in 2023. There's an actual discount code for us this time. It's not just call them up and say, hey, uh, I know who Jerry is. Now, uh, it's discount code PAR, and use that when you log in and and sign up, and they will give you actual money back just for knowing those letters and listening to the show. Uh, Looking forward to that conference already. It will be fun next summer. This past summer, after CWI was over, I had a few days between that and a This Hallowed Ground tour. So with time in between a couple of Civil War activities, I decided to relax and do some Civil War activities. Uh, I drove around to places I'd never been able to visit, The followed Lee's retreat route from Gettysburg through Fairfield, uh, <clears throat> went up into South Mountain, uh, saw the three passes of, of that battle from 1862, was fascinated to see at both Fairfield and at, I think it was Fox's Gap uh, at the South Mountain battlefield area, found these big uh, historical plaques, big markers, upright, six-foot-tall markers with information and pictures about soldiers from Michigan, Custer uh, after Gettysburg and uh, other ones in in 1862, and they were put there by the Michigan Historical Commission. So as a native Michigander, I was pleased to see that my home state's tax dollars uh, are at work going into other people's states and reminding them what... Uh, Michigan men did during the Civil War. I thought that was quite impressive. Uh, I guess that brings up tonight's non-paying sponsor of the show, a sponsor that's never heard of the show and doesn't know they're being mentioned here, would have to be the giant slide on Belle Isle, the park in the middle of the Detroit River, while we're talking about Michigan. Uh, If you hadn't seen it on the news in the last few weeks, Google giant slide, and while you're there listen to gmac cash's recording uh giant slide that is certainly my favorite hometown story of the past summer uh, i think you'll enjoy that but let's get back to civil war talk we've got a, a fine show tonight we've got many good shows coming up <clears throat> there's the first COVID throat clearing there uh, in the month ahead september of 2022 next week uh, butch Beringer comes back to the show His new book is about Thomas Munford, uh, Unhonored Service, the Life of Lee's Senior Cavalry Commander. We'll follow that up on the 14th with a guest whom I met, like tonight's guest, at the Civil War Institute conference last summer. This will be Jill Titus. She's got a book about Gettysburg in 1963, not 1863. On the 21st, uh, Bill Blair has a short but... Impressive and uh, I don't know, depressing, terrifying book: uh, the record of murders and outrages, racial violence, and the fight over truth at the dawn of Reconstruction. And we'll finish up the month uh, with uh, Chris Bryan and his campaign history of the Union's 12th Corps. It's called Cedar Mountain to Antietam. Uh, it covers the 12th Corps between July and September 1862. For those who want to get into the weeds, so we're going to do that with, with 12th Corps. More coming up after that, uh, Jeffrey Wirt, Brian Cheesborough, a lot of other interesting people that, that you've heard of. You can find them all at impedimentsofwar, www.impedimentsofwar.org. and see who's going to be on the show next. Mark Gaffney keeps that up to date. And you can donate with the PayPal button there. Uh I use your donations, as you know, uh, for whatever I please. They are not tax-deductible, charitable contributions. They're just uh, a way of saying, saying thanks for, for the show and much appreciated. Uh, technically, I call it the book fund, so it just sounds better than the, the you know bourbon fund or football tickets fund, but... Once in a while, I'll see a book, and I will actually buy the book with my own cash money, or actually your cash money, once you've given it to me. And that's what I did with the book called The Gettysburg Cyclorama, The Turning Point of the Civil War on Canvas. It is a coffee table-sized book. And after seeing the cyclorama a few times back, I came out and saw they had the book in the bookstore and absolutely had to get it heard one of the co-authors Sue Boardman talk about it this summer at CWI and that's why she had to be on the show. Um, Sue are you there?
3: I am here. Greetings from Gettysburg.
1: Well, well welcome welcome to uh, Civil War Talk Radio. It's good to talk to someone from Gettysburg. I look forward to getting there in a month and a half with a, a, another uh, This Hallowed Ground tour. But in the meantime it's nice to talk to you uh, about it and uh uh, about this book. But let me first ask a question too about your background. In the the blurb, uh, when you gave your talk this summer, it said, "Of course, you've you've been involved in Gettysburg activities for decades, but uh, you had a a non-Civil War day job."
3: Well, well, let's not call it a day job because nursing is a 24/7 job.
1: <laughs> Very good. I was an
3: emergency an emergency department nurse for 23 years.
1: Mm. Yeah, that absolutely that's not something you can can turn off and and put aside. Very good point. Uh what what got you was there any connection between professional interest and civil war interest what what brought you to uh, uh to, to becoming a, a Gettysburg authority?
3: Well, believe it or not, the one area of civil war study I don't really care much about is the civil war medicine because some of it hasn't changed. But in mm. any case, um, it was basically my hometown regiment that drew me into the Civil War history field, and they fought here at Gettysburg. It was the 147th Pennsylvania. So I followed their march route throughout their entire three years at war, and Gettysburg, of course, was within my reach. So I retired from a nursing job and came down here to take the guide exam.
1: It's, and you've you've been a, a licensed battlefield guide for for 20 years, I, I gather from the the note here.
3: Correct, 21.
1: 21. So, um, for folks who have not had the chance to go to Gettysburg, uh, listeners, and and if you get any remote chance, you don't want to miss it. Um, Gettysburg is unique among American battlefields in having a core of licensed guides uh not just anyone can hang out a shingle and and say and, and sell their services as a tour guide at gettysburg which yeah, i suppose you in theory could do at other places this is not what uh, I, i'm just going off script here and curious what do you know much about what why why gettysburg has battlefield licenses as opposed to other places
3: i do um So, of all the battlefields of the Civil War, the veterans tended to be drawn to this one for fairly obvious reasons, since the Union won. Union veterans wanted to continue their camaraderie that they created during the war. Gettysburg was that place, because it's in the north, and it was a major war-turning victory. So, Gettysburg became a a very large battlefield um, visitation site. But... Early on, it was the veterans themselves that took people around the battlefield. In 1895, Gettysburg became a national park, and the War Department, because there was no National Park Service yet, the War Department took over the custodial ship of the park, and they became pretty frustrated with what they referred to as the local hacks telling the story at variance with the truth. So they, in turn, devised a test system and all the testing was always under their control. So when they turned it over to the National Park Service in 1933, that testing continued to be under the National Park Service, um, you know, kind of venue. And it is in the in a code of federal regulation that you must you must have that license in order to be a, a guide on the battlefield at Gettysburg.
1: So if. If my if, if I'm going with, say, Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours bus, we, we, we come to Gettysburg every year when we go on our tours. We hire a licensed guide who takes us uh, on the tour. But if we're driving from the hotel, say, to the House for dinner, and we pass through town and I point something out, uh, as we're actually on Park Service property, could I go? Could I be sent to the big house for that?
3: <laughs> no. Um, there There are other... There are ways around it, and ah, one of those good. ways is a continuing use authorization permit that you acquire from the park, and that allows other professionals like authors and and, and things like that, but mostly it's designed for educators, because, mm-hmm. of course, Gettysburg College comes and does things with students on the battlefield, and they don't get arrested for not using guides.
1: <laughs> that, that's very good to know. Um, Isn't so- it? <laughs> It, 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 it's a relief, I guess. There are times I've wondered, is this really is what I'm doing okay here? Well, you've you've written uh, a book yourself about the Gettysburg Cyclorama, and uh, you co-authored with Chris, Chris Brenneman the book that I'm looking at right now, The Gettysburg Cyclorama, which is just uh, gloriously produced in terms of the illustrations. Uh, and I want to ask about the Cyclorama. Did, did that tie in with the, the veterans' interest in the, the battle? Did they support painting a cyclorama?
3: Well, um, so so, about 23 years after the war is when the first cyclorama was painted, and Gettysburg was selected for several reasons. One, because it was a northern entrepreneur who devised that America needed one. He had already seen one that was produced in Europe. It was called um, The Siege of Paris, and it was shown at the Philadelphia Expo in 1876. And he being mm-hmm. an entrepreneur thought this was a good way to make money. So once he, he put that project in the works, he used veterans as source material. So yes, they greatly supported it, but please take note. All four of the original Gettysburg Cycloramas were shown in northern cities. It was Philadelphia, Chicago, Boston and Phil- Philadelphia. Yeah. Philadelphia, Chicago, Boston and New York. So. That being said, it was as much a, I wouldn't call it propaganda tool, but essentially it was to, to present the northern view of the Civil War. So it was very heavily supported and shown frequently throughout the north until a little bit later when it started to make circuits around through the southern states. But predominantly it was a northern, you know, venue. And it was done because the northern veterans supported their their. Story being told in this fashion.
1: It, interesting how that fits into the historiography and the, in contrast to the growth of Lost Cause versions of the war. We're going to take a short break and come back, talk more with our guest tonight, Sue Boardman. She's co-author of The Gettysburg Cyclorama, The Turning Point of the Civil War on Canvas. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
3: Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ECU. E-D-U. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Sue Boardman, co-author of The Gettysburg Cyclorama, The Turning Point of the Civil War on Canvas. Sue, you mentioned that the... Uh, The original project was supported by veterans. Was the artist a veteran of the Union forces in the Civil War?
3: No, and I found that pretty interesting. He was French, born in Paris, and his his main genre of work was portrait painting. But his father started painting cycloramas, and he got into the trade. He himself, although many of his cycloramas, both European and the American one, um, were all heavily, you know, military-based, and yet the man never served in the military. He was the age of our Civil War veterans. He talked to them. He took their input. But he himself actually never saw warfare.
1: The cyclorama itself, as as a a medium— I guess every generation has new ways to to present, uh, present things to the public. Ours are all very technological today. But did this have like a, a heyday in the, the late 19th century, the idea of making a giant painting, uh, a giant circular painting that the viewer can sort of get lost in? When did that rise? When did it fall?
3: That actually was, as you say, that generation's Art for the masses, if you will, because they didn't have motion pictures. Um, mm-hmm. So basically, this, what what different what causes a, a cyclorama to be different than just a big round painting is its presentation. It's actually it's not a flat painting, as you probably realized as soon as you saw it. You stand mm-hmm. on the platform, you look out across the landscape, and you get that sensation that you could walk through it, and that is created. Using several factors in in its presentation style, so you have to be on an elevated platform, so you're viewing the horizon line, which is midway up from the ground. You have mm-hmm. to have a con. It's con. I don't know if it's concave or convex. It actually bows toward you, but gives the illusion of bowing away from you. And there's um, a three dimensional foreground that helps add to the illusion. So it was definitely a very unique presentation of art. And it was a fad back in that era. It started in Europe, and as I said, it it came to America by way of the 1876 Philadelphia Expo, the centennial, and it really took off. There were probably 30 or 40 different cycloramas making their way around this country in in the 20-year period between 1883 and 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 the year um, 1900.
1: And they're not all Civil War scenes, though. They're
3: no, but the majority of them were um, you could have landscape scenery like Niagara Falls was a popular one. You could mm-hmm. have religious themes. There was a really popular um, Jerusalem on the day of the crucifixion, which was on display in Canada until fairly recently when it closed permanently and but uh, the majority of them were military um, subjects
1: so the I want to come back to that presentation question, but let's let's hold off on that for a minute. Um, and and go back to the origins of this. Now, the in reading the book, you point out that it's it it's not like one guy. This is not Michelangelo on the ceiling painting this whole thing by himself. Um, right. Th- th- there's a th- this is a team project.
3: Definitely, you have the lead artist. Now, his job was to lay it out literally in sketching and in oil, a, f- a smaller version, but also he's the boss. He's the guy getting paid so mm-hmm. his job is to is to get it to the point of execution at which point he hires specialists so he hires landscape artists and face painters and horse painters and and you know the the features in the landscape like tree painters and even a specialized sky painter and all those guys are supervised by him to put the actual paint to canvas
1: so the result is You've got multiple scenes going on all at once. I suppose there are many listeners, I'm sure, haven't had the chance to see the cyclorama, but almost everyone listening here has certainly seen pieces of it reproduced in books mm-hmm. as as as, as uh, set pieces. What exactly does this the cyclorama show us? What what's the moment in the battle that the artist is capturing?
3: Well, technically, a, a static picture can only show you one second or minute in, in, a, uh, you know, in mm-hmm. any event. But this particular one probably covers more like 10 minutes because it shows things that are happening all around the canvas that would have been actually more consecutive than concurrent. But, mm-hmm. but it does, this shows what is represented as the climactic moment of the third day of Battle of Gettysburg, we know as Pickett's Charge, where the, the Confederate breakthrough is happening. So you see prisoners being taken to the rear. You see hand to hand fighting at the wall. You see Armistead on his horse, which was an inaccuracy, but you see him Mm -hmm. on his horse getting his, receiving his mortal wounds. You see all this stuff going on. You can see behind the scenes, behind the Union line, you see medical care being given to wounded, you know, wounded uh, soldiers. So there's Mm -hmm. a lot happening in this painting, but it's supposed to represent that moment when the tide will turn in the Battle of Gettysburg.
1: And you mentioned Armistead shown uh, being wounded while riding a horse, and, and we know yeah. Confederate officers, except Dick Garnett, didn't ride horses in Pickett's charge. Uh, right. Are there other inaccuracies in. It, it, what's the level of accuracy of this painting? How, how much can.
3: Actually, it, it is remarkably accurate because many, not only foot soldiers, but officers had input. For example,. We know that Philip Atto spoke with he visited General Hancock. He mm-hmm. he visited General Gibbon. He visited it was the third oh double day he spoke with him and then a lot of the rank and file guys made contributions. But we think it's possible, although this is not something that can be proven, it's quite mm-hmm. possible that he in his effort to get it correct, he put a Confederate officer on horse, confusing Armistead with Garnet. Because he shows Armistead within the Union line, and of course Armistead the only one that got that far. But Garnet did indeed was the only one that rode the horse, so he mm-hmm. probably just mixed that up. Because after all, he's not even an American, let alone a
2: soldier.
1: So beyond that, though, the 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 uniform details, the positions of the units, and so on these these things uh, he, he gets right for the most part. Would you say?
3: For the most part, but I don't know how many of your listeners are aware that there were actually four Gettysburg cycloramas, all looked, mm-hmm. on first blush, they all look alike because they are all mm-hmm. created from the same master drawings. However, with each succeeding painting, the the lead artist received more and more input and therefore was able to correct certain things that he he did wrong. For example, Chicago's painting, the uniform pants are a light blue, which was incorrect, And a lot of the knapsacks appear to be French origin because he himself was a Frenchman and had access to those particular military accoutrements. So, Mm -hmm. so those little, those little features seem to change and get better with time. But that said, with time, there's a few things that changed, not necessarily for the better because once he got to the fourth version, the New York version, Officers are coming to him and saying, hey, you know, I did this during that event, or I want to be painted in, even though I wasn't right there at that particular oh, scene. So you've got some people in, in some succeeding versions that probably would not have been there had it been a 100% accurate painting. However, the landscape, I would give it 96% accurate, and the details, probably I'd give that about a 92
1: in, in your book, you talk about some of the, uh, and, and in your, your talk this past summer, about some of the things that we don't know or, or couldn't know, um, uh, you know, the weather that day. We, we know it was hot. Um, right. But was the sky cloudy or clear or overcast or, or what? Um, an author can just not mention that, but... Uh, Painter has to have a sky. He's gotta decide if it's gonna be cloudy or not, or or scattered clouds, or cumulus, or so did he just when faced with a question like that, did he just go with his instinct?
3: Okay, so that's a great question because he not only has some local veterans to talk to, it just Mm -hmm. so happens that we know very, very accurately what the weather and the sky and the cloud cover look like on that day. Because a professor at Gettysburg College by the name of Michael Jacobs taught 40 years in his career, and every single day of his teaching career, he recorded three times a day temperature, barometer reading, and cloud cover. So those records were available and obviously used because the cloud is said to have been by those who were there that this this painting is a, is a very accurate rendering of what the conditions were that day. So, so I find that really, really interesting. That he really had a lot of that input into the painting.
1: So th- that that Gettysburg professor with the the three daily recordings must have been a blast at parties to talk with that and guy. No, I
3: think not. Uh, and you know what? A <laughs> colleague, a colleague of mine on the guide force, is actually. I think he's already published in the Gettysburg magazine about the weather. He's about mm-hmm. to do a book. And I'm scratching my head thinking, you know, you're a really good guide, so I can't wait to see how you can turn weather into a book.
1: Well, you know, and Kenneth No wrote that, that excellent book uh, a year or so ago on, on weather throughout the war, but he had the whole war to work with. I don't know. Three days of weather will be a challenge.
3: Um, I so think it's it, the campaign it, that these guys are going to do from, like, July
1: June 3rd to July 15th. Well, all right, we can get there. The, uh, yeah. th- the question about inaccuracies, again, and I learned this from, from your book and your talk as well, uh, I remember many years ago seeing some, some book with pictures from the cyclorama and the author of that book saying, of course, the author, the, 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 the painter being French, he made some mistakes. For example, he has these French-style haystacks. And some listeners right. may know what I'm talking about. Uh, if you, uh, it, And if you don't, you should pause this uh, right now. Go to the Internet, get pictures of the cyclorama, then, then log back on and listen to the rest of us talk, and you'll know what we're talking about. Um, but, yeah, there are haystacks in here that look uh, – they don't look like a modern – like an American lump haystack. They have a sort of uh, sculptured look to them. Uh, it, it, was that – you point out that the author uh, who thinks that was wrong, it was actually uh, the author was wrong. The, the painter was right. Correct.
3: correct. So so the, so people today even, they see the cyclorama painting, and they, they always point out those haystacks because they don't look like anything you've seen here lately. And even mm-hmm. people, old, old school, third-generation farmers say, well, they don't look exactly like the ones my grandpa had on his farm. They are mm-hmm. French-influenced for sure. However... Our Adams County, Pennsylvania, and, and with that, a good swath of our Pennsylvania was settled mm-hmm. by Germans who brought those techniques to America. And very classically around 1860s, we see pictures of those very same haystacks. Now they look a little bit, like you said, they looked a little, they look a little sculptured in the painting. But if you do pull it up on the internet and you find the haystack that's near Meads headquarters in the painting. You will also see soldiers cutting away the sides of the haystack, bundling up the hay, and they're going to be taking it off to where the the wounded are being cared for. So they're actually sculpting it themselves. And all yeah. I can say about the artist is he made him a, a just a tad too tidy, but they're actually very accurate.
1: Just, I mean, the the level of detail uh, to this utterly fascinated. Uh, you said there were four of these paintings, so as if you're making money from one, then, then do three more and you can get four times as many audiences to look at them. Uh, I, I assume that's the motivation for doing multiple ones. Right. So they're all right. touring around the country at the same time?
3: Well, initially, cycloramas were, were made for a permanent location. So Mm -hmm. you had a permanent brick building in Boston for that painting and you had a permanent brick building in Chicago. But after ticket sales slump off, then you either, you know, close it up and throw it away or you move it around. So they Mm -hmm. started to move them around to state fairs and veterans reunions and things like that. And that's when they start to, you know, really get handled pretty roughly. You throw them into some temporary buildings or even into a tent, and sometimes you had to cut a piece of the sky off. So our painting here in Gettysburg, when we started the 2005 restoration, our painting was only 28 feet tall, and it was originally 42 feet tall. And it was originally 377 feet round, and we had only a 256-round painting. All that loss, for the most part, was as it was, handled and moved around and trimmed down to fit in various structures that weren't designed for it.
1: So let's talk about the history of these paintings, and we'll, we'll take a break in a few minutes and talk about restoration in our, our last segment. Uh, the, our our so, so the paintings went around, they got misused. Uh, did they disappear from public view? It seems to me that the Gettysburg one certainly was was... You know, in, in on the battlefield through the 1960s, at least uh, I can recall as a boy seeing Correct. it. Um,
3: okay, so so real quickly, Chicago's yeah. painting did make make the circuit for a short time, but then a typhoon blew it apart Ugh. when it was being shown in 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 a place in Iowa. The Ugh. Philadelphia version was crushed or destroyed when the roof of the building that was holding it fell in it <clears> fell on it. Ugh. The New York version was cut in pieces. Little pieces were framed and given to veterans to hang in their meeting halls, and some of those pieces are floating around out there right now. Boston's painting was the only one that remained intact, even though it got cut down quite a bit. And in 1913, for the big reunion, the 50th anniversary, that painting came to Gettysburg for the first time. It was not intended to stay here, but it did. So that painting was... Sort of temporarily restored in the night in 1959 to 62, and then a full, complete, expensive restoration was done from 05 to 08, and that's the painting visitors look at now.
1: So, so these have have been around, uh, been through the mill, uh, and, and this one that we now see today survived. Uh, it sounds like it was a daunting project. You talk about missing a third of the sky, missing uh, big chunks of of it um what we'll do is take a a break now a little bit early a minute early and come back and talk about this restoration project uh to get to the the utterly amazing state that we're in today just the the marvelous state that the presentation is now uh so we'll take a short break we'll come back and talk more with our guest tonight sue boardman she is co-author of Gettysburg Cyclorama, the turning point of the Civil War on Canvas. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. that's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Sue Boardman, co-author of The Gettysburg Cyclorama, The Turning Point to the Civil War on Canvas. Sue, I remember, again, as a boy in the 1960s going to the battlefield, and uh, at that time the cyclorama was in the big white building on Cemetery Ridge, and you went inside and you walked around on a ramp, and, and you walked around and the painting sat there and you looked at it, and your parents and your little brothers were like, can we go now? And you're the little Civil War guy, so you want to stay longer, but eventually you have to go. Now, instead of uh, walking around, you you view it from a platform uh, in in a room built for the the occasion. You go in and 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 you are on this platform. Uh, the lights darken. There's a roof over the platform. And we started to talk about this in the first section. You said, all this is intentional. the 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 roof keeps you from seeing above the the top of the painting. The platform floor keeps you from seeing. Below the bottom, so all you see is the, the painting itself, like you're immersed in it. Um, what else goes into making this, this such a, an immersive experience?
3: Well, as you said, those parts are all critical, and if you remove one, the painting will mm-hmm. fail to give you the three-dimensional illusion that you're part of that landscape. Mm-hmm. So, Interestingly, this painting has not been displayed as a true cyclorama since 19 well since let's see since it closed at the at the it, it went to the World's Fair in 1893 the White City, you know the Columbian Expo. Mm-hmm. That was the last Chicago, time it was yeah. shown as a true cyclorama. Then it was mm. shut down, didn't see the light of day until only parts of it were shown, only or it was shown without all those important features that make it a three-dimensional immersive experience. So it mm-hmm. hasn't actually been a real cyclorama until it was opened in the new visitor center in 2008 after a 13 million dollar restoration to bring it back 100% and that's what was done it took a couple of years it was a fascinating project to watch
1: So how I mean you look at the pictures of people working on it and they're they're using tools the size of a toothbrush uh, right to 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 it correct flex of paint, uh, the, but the painting is in hundreds thousands of square feet. Right, this is going to take Still a long time. So a million time. square inches. So so, so that, uh, that's
3: what took so long. I mean, so <coughs> so our original team that made it made is, it. It took them a year, and there was about sixteen to twenty of them. And our conservation team numbered about eighteen people, and it took them three years.
1: A, who uh, was behind this? Was, was this uh, a government project, the Gettysburg Foundation? How?
3: It was the foundation, but mm-hmm. it, it it all came out of a general management plan, which every superintendent basically puts out there when they achieve a job at a park. So our mm-hmm. new superintendent at the time, John Lepcher, I think it was mm-hmm. 1995, so his general management plan, which was very, very ambitious. Came out in 1999, and in it, there were several things that were going to happen. Some of which had never happened before in the Park Service. So one of the, one of the big projects, and people at Gettysburg have have seen this in the last decade, are is the restoration of the landscape that was under John yes. Latcher, and it was amazing. The other That's one was is. forming a first-ever public-private partnership to build a new v- museum visitor center and to restore that painting. So that was actually a park service initiative funded and supported by the Gettysburg Foundation.
1: So then the work begins now. We've got a structure in place to, to support this. You've got individual people with training, I assume, in art conservation, uh, mostly Amazing working on this training. team.
3: Yeah. yeah. The lead, Our lead conservator, David Olin from Falls um, Church, Virginia, Mm-hmm. He has not only a degree in art restoration and art history, he has one in chemistry, which is what allowed him to not only conserve the painting, but then restore it. That's two very distinctly different processes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, the They had to undo certainly a lot of bad work that had been done to it in the past and, and damage that had been done. Uh, there must have been places where you just had missing swaths of canvas. How, how did they fill those in?
3: That is true, and it was pretty interesting. Uh, and that's how I got involved in the project, actually. My role on the conservation team was historian. So it would be one of those, okay, we, we seem to be missing 14 feet here, what's supposed to be in it? So then I have to go on the trail of, okay, images. There's got to be images. Every one of the four Gettysburg cycloramas, when they were displayed, made available to visitors a set of photographs, so they could mm. literally take it home with them. All four sets of those photographs were uncovered, and from those four sets of photographs, we were able to recreate the missing parts as they actually looked at the time.
1: So so it's not just guesswork of, well, oh, you no. know, this regiment must have been here, so we'll paint a new regiment in. So this actually does nope. capture the artist's, artist's intent. Um,
3: Original intent, yes.
1: We've talked about three-dimensionality uh, as well. The, again, the, the 1960s version was just a painting on a wall. You walked around. It was big and impressive. But now um, there are things in the painting and between the viewer on a platform and the painting itself. some uh, Is it 15 feet away, maybe? How, fa- how far are you That's from the painting?
3: Surprisingly, here? it's 38. 38. Is it that feet. far?
1: I would not have uh, It just that.
3: looks wow. less because the painting is so large.
1: Yes, I guess that, that makes sense. Then, And in that 38-foot gap, there are objects. Uh, it's right. Like the battlefield was there. I, I think it was um, the, the Taylor Studios, I think, uh, was involved in that. Yes.
2: Yes, they absolutely.
1: Uh, uh, I've, I've consulted with them before in terms of public history projects. They they built the, the, uh, the battlefield stuff in between the, the viewer. And, and the result is, again, you've got this three-dimensional sense. It's not just a picture of a cannon, but there's actually a cannon uh, right. that you're looking at. Now, that, you say, was part of the original intent of the cyclorama?
3: Yeah. To have if all you that? stood on the platform and you mm-hmm. did not have a diorama, then your eye mm-hmm. would be immediately drawn to a huge black void and there would be mm-hmm. no way you could imagine the, the continuation of the battlefield to, to your feet. It would mm-hmm. just it would just break the continuity. So mm-hmm. the reason for the, that three-dimensional four, or foreground, the diorama they call it, is to not mm-hmm. only blur the bottom of the painting so that it becomes continuous with the three-dimensional landscape, but it's also designed to fill that void. So it supports the painting itself in the art form, but it also fills a void so your eye isn't distracted to it. And in in your book, you talk about. Go
1: ahead. Say you you talk about clues to that where uh, the the artist paints a uh, a tripod well uh, a a tripod holding up a rope with a bucket going into a well, but he only paints two of the legs of the tripod, and that was intended to be part of the diorama. The third leg.
3: Right. The third the third leg would be real three dimensional, Mm -hmm. but. Because of the lighting, you notice when you go into the sacrum, there's it's always somewhat dim lighting. Right. That's designed so that you really can't see the integration points. And people mm-hmm. comment all the time here at Gettysburg about I can't tell where the painting ends and the three-dimensional foreground starts. And that's that's yeah. the whole goal. So apparently we've succeeded.
1: Well, I would say very much. Um, it- when when one goes to see it today, you you go in the visitor center. It, it's shown as part of a formal show. You don't just like walk up when you feel like it. Uh, but there's a presentation that that's. Uh, I'm going to guess the wrong amount of time. I'd say 15 to 20 minutes, but maybe it's not. No,
3: much. you're about right. It's about 13. <laughs> you're
1: right. Okay, it it's um, it it's absorbing. Uh, I've seen it multiple times and never get tired of it. Uh, when you when you're watching it there's narration telling you what's happening there's lighting illuminating different segments of the painting to to create this narrative a uh, story here's one thing as, as you suggest the art, art, artist shows different things happening that happened at different times and so the lighting will highlight now it's morning now it's mid-morning here come pickett's men here come the union reinforcements uh the music builds there are sound effects uh it, all of this now, now I guess that recorded sound couldn't have been part of the original intent because they didn't have that no uh, no but but did they have a sort of sound and light approach to these
3: actually what they used at the time and it was discovered almost by accident they mm-hmm. typically you would just buy a ticket go up off the street in in semi-darkness step out onto mm-hmm. the platform and suddenly you have that wow moment that you're standing on the battlefield of Gettysburg. And then right. you just walked around the platform and looked at it. But mm-hmm. in, in inadvertently, there were often, met many times, there were veterans in the crowd, ticket holders, who mm-hmm. actually they didn't even have to pay for their ticket. That was a standing rule. Veterans didn't pay. They mm-hmm. would launch into their discussion of, oh, this is the experience I had, or this is what's happening over here. And it became mm-hmm. so popular that they started to actually hire Veterans, whom they referred to as delineators, but they were lecturers, and uh-huh. their job was to walk the crowd around the platform and tell them what's happening. Huh. So, wouldn't that so be amazing part- to, to get that oh, experience
1: from someone who was actually there? Absolutely. So, yeah. so the 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 audio presentation that we have today is is in this tradition of of. Uh, of telling people what they see, so one goes in and and you see this. Um, when you come out of it, there there's another exhibit that highlights individual pieces uh, and mm-hmm. and shows some of the astonishing detail within the painting. Uh, the artist has painted himself into the painting, uh, as you note, uh, as a like Alfred Hitchcock's cameos in his movies. The art, right, he, he puts himself in rather than sign his name to it. Uh, but there are little bits everywhere, uh, you know, a dog howling over a wounded soldier. That uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm not sure where that is on the painting. I don't, I've, I've seen it in your book. I, I would have to go uh, next time I go. I'll have to look for it. But one one could look for many hours uh, at at the individual details. It, given your lengthy involvement with this, do you ever do you still enjoy going to to see the show?
3: Absolutely. And and that ah. the way that show was presented, it was ri- it was um, produced by Donna Lawrence Productions out of Kentucky, and mm-hmm. I still there's one or two lines in that thing that still caused me to tear, because they mm-hmm. use soldier quotes that are talking about their experience crossing that field.
1: It, it uh, well, listeners, if this has not convinced you to uh, get yourself on on a bus or plane to Gettysburg and go see the cyclorama I, I don't know what will uh, the book is you know tells the history of it the detail of, of shows many of the details uh, again it's beautifully illustrated high quality glossy paper and uh, uh, tells the 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 history of both the, the original and then the the reconstruction uh, elements of the cyclorama is there any do you have a favorite piece of it?
3: Well, I like the whole thing. I I still to this day can go up there and study it and stare at it and see something I really hadn't noticed before. But Mm -hmm. one of my favorite stories is that when you do go see it and you stand there and you look over toward the Confederate line and then you look back at the Union line, there's two men standing there next to one another who appear to be totally nonplussed by the total chaos that's going on behind them. Turns out those two soldiers, and they look a little old, are a pair of brothers from the twenty fourth Michigan. there's your your state. They are mm-hmm. um, it's Robert and Peter Byrd of the twenty first and twenty fourth Michigan as part of the Iron Brigade who didn't fight at the angle on July three. But those mm-hmm. two men are there because they happened to meet the artist at Gettysburg in eighteen eighty two when the artist was doing the homework for the painting, and they informed some of his work. So he, in turn, as as gratitude, put them in the painting. And the fact that they're not engaged in the action, but are, in fact, instead staring at you, the viewer, is your hint that they're not part of the actual story. Just like the artist himself, leaning on a tree, not shooting a gun, but he's there.
1: And yet, because they were in a regiment that was heavily engaged on the 1st of July. Yes. Uh, it it's not, it's not a fantasy. They could have been on the battlefield at that moment. Uh, Absolutely. Away from their and they regiment. could have, you
3: know, told him about the uniforms and about the sky and about the clouds and the heat and all that.
1: Well, wow. Well, it is, it is just, uh, it, you know, there's no substitute for walking the ground. We all know that at any battlefield, and you want to do that. And when you're at Gettysburg, you definitely want to get your chance to do that. Uh but there's, there's nothing like the Gettysburg Cyclorama in terms of conveying uh, a, a, a landscape at the, with the soldiers in it. Uh, so, so listeners, do not miss the opportunity to do that. And uh, if you can't do it, or if you've done it and want to remember it, this book, The Gettysburg Cyclorama, The Turning Point of the Civil War on Canvas, uh, by Chris Brenneman and our guest tonight, Sue Boardman, is just a a treat. Uh, That's all I can say. Highly recommended. Uh, And Sue, it has been a, a treat talking with you tonight.
3: You as well. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: So thank you for being here. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.